Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. Welcome back to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. My next guest is Ken Burke, who is the founder and executive chairman of an e-commerce software platform called Market Live. Ken started this business at a very young age, but ultimately built it up to over 250 employees, and they had over $2 billion worth of retail transactions going through their platform at the time of exit. Now, this was an enormous transaction, and Ken himself says it was a life-changing event. They managed to sell their business for over $100 million. This is a serious deal here. Now, what I love here is that Ken is just completely open about unpacking that experience and talking about what it was like, some of the challenges they found, and, and what they did to keep driving through and ultimately build a very valuable company. Now, Ken's gone on to do a lot of exciting things that he also touches on. Look, I know you're going to get a lot out of this one. I love this episode. This is Ken Burke. Ken Burke, welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Simon, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, look, it's a pleasure. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to unpacking your story and uh, yeah, just uh, going on a bit of a journey together. So, so do appreciate you giving us your time. Beautiful. Ken, you know, maybe I know we're going to talk about your business market live today and, and what an amazing sort of experience and, and ultimately an exit that was for you. Maybe you could kick off and just give us a little of your background and what kind of led to you starting that company. Yeah, well, you know, I started out of grad school, so I have a, I have an, uh, I have a master's degree in entrepreneurship from USC here in the states. Uh, you know, it's a fairly good uh, entrepreneurial school, and so I had entrepreneurism, you know, flowing in my blood since age five or six. It just has always been the case. I don't think I ever thought I was going to work for someone, um, but you know, as an entrepreneur, you work for everyone. <laughs> so you know, there goes that idea, right? Whoops. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I, I just love, and I, I learned this about myself. I love growing businesses. I love growing things. It doesn't necessarily need to be a business. It's just that idea of growth. And I actually wrote a book about it called Prosper. At the beginning of the year, I released it on Amazon uh, and uh, it's doing, it's done very well. And it really, Prosper is all about talking about, we're really all here to learn, grow and develop from a philosophical, maybe a spiritual perspective. I know that's not what we're talking about today, uh, but, but, and that's really what a business represents to me. I know I'm at my best when I'm growing something. And I got to tell you, we got the ups and downs. So Market Live was a great, you know, I bootstrapped it from like, I didn't know back when I started in 95, and I know I'm a bit older than your normal guests, right? But back when I started at 95, it was my first business. And at the time, I didn't know anything about VCs or angels. And there really wasn't the same infrastructure that we have today. Here, certainly, I mean, I'm in San Francisco. So, you know, I have a little bit of an advantage that we have a wildly um, developed infrastructure for VC and angel investment. And it's almost like a, 
you know, it's what everybody talks at the bars and the, and the restaurants is about who your VCs are and blah, 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 blah. I know that doesn't exist all the way around the world, but that is certainly developed in many, many other uh, countries and cities around the world as well. And so we didn't have that back then. So I only knew how to run a business. So I just started it, built some software. I started as a services company, which by the way is great. And you can eat more easily start a services company. I know your audience knows that. There's a problem with a services company. While you can scale it, you scale it with people and it's not as valuable. And so I had to make that whole transition from being a services company with some software and now we call it a tech-enabled business. But back then, we just called it a service business with software to a fully SaaS-based service business. And this was before SaaS companies existed. So um, in growing and going through that kind of transition, I learned a lot and how to satisfy customers. But one of the things in 2001, we had the dot bomb, 2001, 2002, where most of my competitors were wiped out. But I didn't know any better. And I think my stupidity, quite frankly, was the reason why we were still around because we just had customers that actually had real businesses. They were in the e-commerce space, but they weren't the dot-coms. They weren't pets.com and some of the other ones that your audience may never not even remember, which all went out of business because the VCs pulled their money. They were real companies. And so we just kind of grew with real companies and we serviced them. I didn't have any money. I didn't have any startup capital. We just started a service company. We self-funded it. I then used that money to fund the software. And then our software got better and better and better and better. You probably have heard that story before. Completely bootstrapped. 11 and a half years into the business, I somehow get approached by, I think, an, a, a VC that was not Sequoia Capital because uh, they ultimately funded us, but it was another VC. And then I went in and I hired an investment banker, very basic one, just, you know, kind of grabbed somebody off the street, didn't know him. And he said, hey, Ken, you know, let's go ahead and market this thing. Here's, here are these guys coming in. They approached you. Uh, they have an offer. Um, but, you know, you may want to shop it around a little bit. Good advice for our entrepreneurs out there, not just to go and they all know that now. But, you know, back then I didn't know. and so. Um, we went to literally Sequoia Capital and they loved it. Sequoia Capital, I'm sure your audience knows, the number one VC in the world. Google, Apple, LinkedIn, uh, 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 you know, everybody. Everybody's gone through there. So I'm like, yeah. you know, scared to death of these guys. It took me a month and a lot of coercing from them to actually get to take the investment because I'm like, well, I like the other guys better. And they're like, do you know who we are? And I'm like, no, not really. And I don't really know all this funding stuff. It was all new to me. And all that they like you don't you know who we are nobody says no to us and then here's the cool story is i start getting calls from random ceos of major companies in the bay area calling me out of nowhere saying you know i you know we really you know we really think you should go with sequoia we've had a great experience i'm like i don't even know who you are but i've heard of you you're famous but i don't know who you are freak me out and then you know they kind of just like after saying no for about four weeks they sat me down we went to a restaurant this i'm telling a little storytelling i don't mean to but it's kind of fun right they sat me down and said, we're, we're at this restaurant in San Francisco, and uh, three of the partners at Sequoia Capital sat me down and said, okay, Ken, we're ready to do a deal. It's going to be a third, a third, a third, a third, a third, a third. I'll never forget it. And we did the same thing at Google. We gave, uh, you know, uh, Sergey, or, 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 I can't remember their name, Sven, and what the other guy's name is, Bren, or whatever their names are, uh, a third. We gave the shareholders a third, and we took a third. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not liking that. So, I mean... I know it's Google, but that doesn't resonate with me. I want to keep my equity, blah, 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 blah. So we ended up doing a deal for 25% of the company, which, you know, in that day was a lot, but they also gave us a decent amount of money. Okay. So we're off and running at the, at the, at the thing. And then from there, we just, we turned into a SaaS company. We grew, we grew, we grew. You know, we had the ups and downs and the roller coasters. I replaced the CEO about five or six years into the investment. Then I came back. 
a la Steve Jobs and recovered the company. Not I'm not Steve Jobs, trust me, or anywhere close to him. I wish I was, but I'm not. Um, but company took a dive and, you know, we were almost, you know, we're almost out of business. I had to come back in, push the VCs away and said, could you just let me try to recover this thing? Two years later, sold it for 10 digits. Uh, so 10 digits over $100 million. I won't give the actual amount. So it was ultimately a success. Everybody, all the VCs were all still friends. I mean, friends as far as, you know, we had a good experience together, but it was ups and downs. And I got to tell you, you know, I learned a lot from it, but a couple of real quick things. Covet thy equity. I always say that and I always tell my entrepreneurs, don't be giving out equity to everybody and their brother. You, when you start giving out equity, you're giving out because when you start, I, you know, you're going to keep going because every VC that invests in you has a reserve fund for you if you don't know it. And maybe one to two rounds, they've already reserved the money, right? That they know they're going to do one to two more rounds with you. So if you don't think you're going to get diluted, they're not going to get diluted because they're putting more money in, but you're going to get diluted. And if you have a down round where your valuation is lower than the last round, ooh, that hurts. We had a down round. One of the five rounds we did was a down round. Uh, and so there's a lot of ups and downs and roller coasters with that. So covet thy equity, number one. Don't just say we're 50-50 partners, okay? Don't ever do a 50-50 partnership. They don't work, period. Do a three-person partnership. Do somebody what has 49 and 51. That's good, but don't do that. Uh, uh, but uh, so covet the equity. I forgot the other one already. So I'm going to stop there, but I'm sure it will pop back in. Um, oh, you know what? The other thing, let me tell you this real quick. One other thing that I learned and that one of my board members and mentors uh, taught me was don't have a, uh, a parent-child relationship with your VCs or your board members. And when I didn't learn that lesson until the second time when I came back as CEO and said, guys, here's what we're doing. <laughs> okay, let's just listen. I've got five key initiatives and two years to sell the company for as much as I possibly can. No BS. Leave me alone. Give me $2 million because I had no money when I came back. I need $2 million, which they gave in a second. was like not even thinking about it. And leave me alone. And that's what they did. We ended up taking it. We quadrupled the value of the company literally within, within two years. Had a wonderful exit. Very positive. And now the company's probably worth 2 or $3 billion uh, or $4 billion with the current owners. And so that's the success. But the thing is, don't succumb to the, 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 the partners. You've got to stand your ground with these guys because they will push you around and they will take on the parent where then you're always trying to please them. And guess what? You can't please them. It's impossible. If you think your sales goal is, 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 is high right now, just wait till the, you make that goal. Because as soon as you make your sales goal, guess what's going to happen? They're going to double it and they're going to push you to double it. I call it a drug dealer strategy. My personal <laughs> needle in your arm with the money they know they can give you more money and then they just keep on coaxing you more and more. And I love them to death. I even told them that this drug dealer strategy. And so they stay, you know, so be careful with how you manage your board, how you manage your investors and really take control. The last thing I'm going to say, and then I'm going to shut up, I promise, which is, which is really important. Here's what Sequoia told me. Uh, Sequoia Capital told me uh, right after they gave me the money, the first meeting, they said, Ken, three strikes, you're out. And here's how it works. If you make a mistake, that's strike one. If we demand or if we together agree on a strategy or something you're going to do and it's wrong and it fails, strike two on you. And if we force you to take a strategy, strike three on you. OK, so good luck. You're fully responsible for whatever happens. I'll leave you with that as far as this uh, opening goes. I know that was a very long intro, but a lot in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we got from the intro to the end and back again. We're so done. that's OK. We're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're going to do a couple of loops on this mirror and I think so. Uh, so t tell me, I'm always interested in how people get started. Like, you know, you're clearly an entrepreneurial you know, guy who's, you know, you're involved in many, many ventures. 
were your parents entrepreneurial? Did they have their own businesses? Did they were you brought up with this concept of of, of running your own company? No, uh, no. My parents, uh, my mother's a depression era baby, uh, so you know it's all about constraint and not taking risks and and surviving. My father, where I got the bug was he wanted to buy a hardware store, and him and I were very much into you know making things and building things and repairing things. Today they call it you know like you know do it yourself kind of DIY things, but back then. You, know, you went to your local hardware store and he wanted to buy it, wanted to buy it really bad. He didn't, but that gave me the, that, that, that process got me excited to own my own business one day. And ever since then, I never looked back, but I was also, you know, I was delivering papers. I know we don't do that now anywhere in the world because it's probably dangerous, but you know, I was a kid, 12 years old out on my bike at five in the morning, throwing papers or, or mid or not midnight, but at six at night, throwing newspapers on doors. I had not one route. I had four routes, right? So I loved money. I loved the idea of not necessarily being my parents with that constraining idea. And I think that was really, I have to say, good, bad, or indifferent, I'm being totally honest, that's what motivated me into entrepreneurship. It was the challenge and the growth and everything, but I also wanted the money. And I did know back then, and I do know now, one of the pathways to riches is own your own business. I mean, own it and sell it and own it and sell it and own it and sell it. Um, I didn't know how I was going to do it all, but I knew that that was a pathway for me. I got to tell you, though, once I was in it, that became secondary. The money became secondary to the growth and the success. And now I'm a serial entrepreneur. So I have two businesses right now that are startups because I sold my company and now I'm started two new ones. Um, and, and, and I'm very excited about both of them, but I'm starting from scratch again with nothing, right? And, and funding both companies myself. And, 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 but it's from a whole different place now. It's not anything about money at all. I don't care. It's about the growth and, and what I can deliver. It's about legacy. It's about a purpose-driven business which I hope we talk about. So Yeah. Well, look, and I think, you know, as, um, you know, Dan Pink, I recall saying, you know, money's really important as a motivator. You know, look at human behaviour. Money's important, but only to a point. Yep. You know, once people actually have enough money, whatever that actually means, you know, money just disappears off the table as a, as a, as a priority. And all of a sudden, you know, the, yeah, the key, the key drivers become, um, being being self driven or autonomous, being able to control your own time and the way you do things, yeah, you know, working on things, you know, mastery, working on things that you can get better at because hey, it's cool getting better at things. It's fun. It's fun to learn. And the third thing he points out was having a, a sense of purpose, working on something that's bigger than yourself that contributes to the world in some other way. Um, and 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 I think you know, what you've just described there, I think pretty much ticks all those boxes. Oh, I, that is, I, I, that's a great summary of things. And that's really what goes around in my head each and every day uh, is, is that's what's driving it now. And, you know, it's hard when you, you know, that people out there listening, whatever level of success you've had, and you got a little bit of money here and there, it's hard sometimes to hear. It's like, well, it's easy for them to say, right? You know, but it really is true. I can only tell you that at whatever level, the money becomes a burden or it becomes, I don't want to say a burden because it does allow you freedom and flexibility and things of that nature, but it is really uninteresting to an entrepreneur. An entrepreneur's brain, we don't stop after we sell the company. We don't stop after, there's something in us. It's the same thing as what rock stars do or musicians do and, and, and movie, movie actors and actors and actresses do. It's the craft that drives you. It's the same place. You know, Tom Cruise does not need to make another movie. He's rich enough, right? Uh, uh, and we, the names can go on and on. The Rolling Stones do not need to keep touring. Maybe they shouldn't, but I'm not going to judge them, right? Uh, or whatever. They have enough money. They do it for the love of the game. And I think that's where you get to. And so for people that are doing it for success reasons, please continue. That's good. Your definition of success, and I write about this in my book, really understand and know your definition of success, kind of like you know your exit strategy. Your business is all about exit strategies. 
Uh, and, and, and that's something that you have to define well before you actually exit, right? Because yeah. your business- well, it's, a, it's a good point. I mean, I had a quick, sorry to cut across you, yeah, but there's just to pick up this point around exiting is important because uh, we, we had a client uh, once who came to us that we wanted to sell. Um, and, and I'm just going to make up some numbers here because obviously I can't share their name and all, and all the rest. But this particular client said to me, look, I want to sell. I need five million. And we actually did a valuation on his business. And as it turns out, I said to him, look, your business is probably worth half that, you know, two and a half, maybe three on a good day. Um and of course, he was shattered. This bloke was absolutely shattered because he he needed to stop working. He wanted to get out of the business, but he needed this particular amount of money to be able to move on with the rest of his life, pay off his debts, leave a bit in the bank, do a couple of things, you know. And and it like five million dollars. And I don't want to be um, what's the word dismissive here of you know five million dollars is a lot of money to to most people on the planet, um, but you know for him it was also this element of well, f- less than five, four million, three million just was not enough. It just couldn't allow him to do what he needed to do. And so we actually went through a little process with him where I, I got him to explore and, and really stress test this five million um, around, well, what's, what is your budget? What are your debts? What's going on? Like you're saying this number is important, but how much science have you put behind that number? And to be honest, it was all just in the back of an you envelope, in the back of you your make brain. It up. Yeah, he was making it up. Exactly right. And so- I actually encouraged him to go speak to a financial advisor about it and say, look, get some help around this. I'm, you know, I, I don't have a horse in this race. I don't, you know, I'm just telling you the facts around what I think your business is worth. Um, but got some advice, pulled it apart, came back and said to me, you know, Simon, like I, that was actually a really cathartic experience. He said, I've actually realized that, you know, the, the two and a half to three, it, it's still not quite enough. But to be honest, I could probably do this for three and a half. And and four would be perfect, you know, perfect. I'd be absolutely, of course, I'd love five. I'd love ten. But at the end of the day, I could achieve freedom with three and a half. And his mindset shifted. The weight came off the shoulders. Because uh, I told him to get to five, you're staring down the barrel of probably another solid three years minimum of work, effort, intensity. Like looking at your model, you're going to have to invest time and money. And And the thought of grinding that out for another couple of years was, horrifying to him and so you know just i guess it just touches on this what is important to you because you know we said before money is important but only to a point well if you could establish with clarity what that number is once you hit it geez your life becomes interesting because you now have different choices that are not security and money constrained Absolutely. No, absolutely. And and a lot of it is mindset in terms of, and there's probably a good healthy dose of ego in there as well. Um, For sure. I'll tell you what I did. And I can tell you specifically that um, I did set a target two years, coming back to the business, I I had two years uh, and I set a target and said, we're going to sell for this amount of money. And and, and that's what our driving. When I hired the investment banker, uh, the banker that was actually going to take the company out uh, to do it, I told them that. We ended up, I will tell you, in my case, we ended up with 20% higher valuation. We were not worth what we sold for. We sold for 20% more only because, only because I set a target and said, I will not sell for less than this. Now, I, we, we were probably worth around that. It was, the, you know, the numbers were bigger. Um, but there is something about setting a target, but also being realistic about the target. And also, we would have probably sold for the, the 20% less uh, had that been the only offer. It's funny because I said, don't take an offer back to me below this number, right? 
And literally, the, uh, the, the firm that bought us was a huge private equity firm, uh, very, very famous here in the US called Vista Equity Partners. They're the, one of the biggest tech companies in the world, actually. They're eighth largest, I think, ranked tech company in the world. And they came back with a number slightly below it. And the investment makers didn't even share it with me. They came back and they added another, literally to get over it, it was another 5 million. They just needed to get over this number. They just fell short for whatever reason. They just fell, and the yeah. guys are like, I can't take that to Ken. They came back with another $5 million the next day. They didn't, and then the banker came to me with the number. I'm like, oh, good. You, you exceeded my number. They're like, that was the objective. That was the, entire, that was the negotiation. And I know it was only $5 million, but in the grand scheme, I say only because we obviously sold for a lot more than that. But that, that, that was the story. So I hear what you're saying as well. But you know what? If I was an arrogant CEO that didn't want to get out or didn't see that I could do a lot more after selling the company, then... You know, then, then, then I might have gotten caught up and and really had a challenge in uh, in that. But you know, well, look. And in, in fairness to your situation, you're talking about the types of the, the the amounts of money that you know. This is not about oh, I'm going to just make enough to pay off my house and do this and do that. Like it's it's a, it is at a different a different level, and there are different considerations at that level. So, um, so yeah. Look, I, I appreciate where where you're sort of coming from in that perspective, but. Talk to me a little bit about the journey, though, because I, you know, you touched on it. Obviously, you know, a long time in that business and involved in it, and and I guess I don't know. I've been around long enough and been to enough uh, angel meetings and hearing about different business. And everyone reads the success stories of different, you know, unicorn businesses, and it's. Well, as, as a friend of mine said to me, it's all this kind of Instagrammable bullshit, you yeah. know, like, oh, I started my company in my parents' garage. Of course, I've got to have some kind of challenge obstacle with either myself or I've had an injury or something. But, you know, add water, presto, unicorn, like, oh, geez, wasn't that bloody simple? And, and I just find, and this is what we try to unpack on the show a little bit is, okay, we all can see that this was a massive success story, but what the hell happened in the middle for you to kind of get from... A to B. <laughs> and, and nobody, you know, it's funny because I, I lecture at uh, a university here, local university, Northeastern University, which has a campus here in San Francisco and Berkeley, UC Berkeley, which a lot of your listeners would know that as one of a, a wonderful school. And I, anytime I'm lecturing to a Gen Zer, 20 to 23 years old, the first thing they say is, Ken, why did it take you 21 years to sell your business? What the hell's wrong with you? I expect to be a unicorn in three to five years, three years, not five years, three years. I'm like, well, what? What planet are you coming from? And so, of course, because I'm you know now a bit older, I basically you know berate them in a positive way. Uh, with you know it, it, the, the thing is, and they point to they point to you know we have a lot of startups here in the Silicon or in the Silicon Valley in San Francisco. So they point to Airbnb, and I'm like, or Uber or whatever. And I'm like, do you know the stories? I mean, or DocuSign, or you know, I was involved in DocuSign. I had friends that worked there. My investors were invested in it. I knew my ex employees actually worked at DocuSign as an example. And it's like. It took 10 to 15 years before they came the overnight success that they were or Airbnb or Uber or any Uber. And these are the most successful examples that everybody points to. What about the rest of us? You know, uh, you know, you, you sell and, 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 and it's, it's almost like, you know, it's, it's never enough. It's like not enough because you're always being compared to something bigger and better. That's completely BS and ridiculous, right? The roller coaster. Go ahead. Yeah, and I was going to say, and how do you measure success anyway? Because, and, and I haven't looked at it lately, but I'm pretty sure that Uber is still not profitable. So, no, not at all. And struggling, and struggling mightily right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. So, their equity has gone, gone, done the big J curve. But at the end of the day, your backers aren't going to just keep pouring money into it. At some point, they want to return. So, you know, you, you, you got it. Yeah. Well, here's the wake up call. There's a couple of things in there. One is the wake up call. 
that happens. And this happened to us in our business when Sequoia Capital gave a very famous meeting in 2008. 2008 was a housing crisis. And everybody knows in the Silicon Valley, everybody knows this meeting. I was there. Uh, and, and it was called the Stuck Pig. And I'm sorry for the analogy, Stuck Pig Meeting. And they showed a, a slide that had a, a pig with a knife in it or something like that or a fork. I can't remember. And it was, and this went viral immediately, uh, all through all, any entrepreneur knew this at the time, which was basically Sequoia Capital saying, you're not getting another dime from us. We want you to cut and cut as deep as you possibly can because you aren't getting any money for two to four years. We're done. And if you're about ready to go out of business, we're not helping you go out of business. That was in 2008. That was the message. And that was to every one of their portfolio companies, including us. Thank goodness we didn't need the money. We were fine. We were also semi almost profitable. Uh, at the time, I don't think our company was actually ever fully profitable because what we did is we continued to reinvest in growth. And that's part of the strategy because we knew profits are not going to sell the company. Revenue multiples are going to make this company worth what it is. Not every business is like that. There are some businesses out there from your listeners that profit is really important and they've got to show that profit. But for our tech business, it was all about growth, customers and uh, reoccurring revenue. That was it. And that's still the cases today. So we reinvested everything, absolutely. But you know that idea of getting cut off, and by the way, a lot of companies, that just happened to. It just happened to in March. This year, we're, hit, you know, we're hitting the, the downturn, the recession, the this, the that. And all of a sudden, companies, and I, I actually was on the board of one uh, that is now no longer because of, in part because of that. And they were companies that didn't have enough wherewithal to stick through it. And one of the things that I've always tried to do, first of all, have a great financial plan. I got to tell you, you have to have a three-year or five-year financial plan, but at least a three-year with one year that's super tuned into exactly what you're doing and you update it every month. Your CFO or you or whomever you do it. I don't care if you're a small business or a big business, you have to do that. And I got to tell you, most of the businesses listening right now do not have that plan because I Absolutely. know that because when you go in to do their exit, you ask them for this plan and they don't have it. You can't do an exit exactly. plan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. You're spot on. And I just, just to reinforce that point, I mean, anybody listening to this, if you're not doing this kind of forecasting, how can you possibly understand what's coming in front of your business? Like you can't predict everything, but geez, if you aren't at least mapping the things you already know and the things you have greater ability to predict, you, you're just driving blind. It's just madness. Well, if you think about it, and I know your listeners uh, uh, possibly have encountered this, I encountered it. We had to do two layoffs in the history of of market life. Both were devastating. One, I had to lay off 10 employees when we had 100. So it was 10% of the staff. This was in 2000. And, oh, goodness. Well, this 2000. I can't remember what it was. 2001, 2002. We hadn't even gotten funded back then. And uh, it was devastating for me to think that I had to lay off anybody. was It was the most heart-wrenching thing I've ever done in my life as a new entrepreneur. And I'm sure people can identify with that. Now, today, maybe it's a little bit easier to do. It's just the hardest thing. That was not the culture of the company. I was all about supporting and helping and you know making sure our, our employees were extremely well taken care of. And then we did another layoff uh, that was done by a different CEO later in 2008, 2009, somewhere around there after he'd messed up the company. And it was also fairly small. But here's the deal around the layoffs. Here's the mistake that most entrepreneurs make. They wait too long and then they can't affect the outcome. So you're like, I don't want to lay anybody off. I don't want to lay anybody off. I don't want to cut back. I don't want to slow down growth. I'm running out of money. I'm running out of money. I'm running out of money. You're going to hit a wall. And then all of a sudden, you, you, don't, you can't do it. And then all of a sudden impact. If you're going to do layoffs, you've got to lay off. And here's my advice on layoffs. You do it one time. You do it as deep as you need to do it. But you only do it one time. And everybody else after that, after that occurrence, you reassure them that this, to the best of your ability and your knowledge, this is, what, this is all we need to do. Because then you get the, 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 uh, 
the camaraderie back in. So everybody's not worried about their job. Now, if you can't make that guarantee, don't do it, of course. But the idea of you got to manage those layoffs and you got to communicate them. Don't don't send out emails. Don't you're the entrepreneur. You do it yourself. You meet with every person. You lay them off one on one. I don't mean to talk about I don't mean I don't mean to focus on layoffs, but I, I don't mean layoffs, just layoffs, cutbacks as well. We cut back too late. You need to be thinking three to six months before you actually need to do it. What's going on and make some of those moves early. Yeah. And, and, and if I can add a point to that too, because I, I mean, I c- completely agree with everything you've just said. Um, but the only thing I'd say as well is with these layoffs is sometimes in life, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. And so you've got to do it with a level of decency because the people left over, they not only are they thinking, well, they might think for a moment, geez, okay, I'm safe for now. But if they see that you've treated people badly, yeah, then all they're going to think is that's how you treat everybody. And you you lose their trust, you lose their respect. And all that camaraderie, that culture, the vibe, all of that, it, it's gone. It, it, you have to be very careful about your integrity. I will give you a use case of a company that I'm involved with right now that split their company. I won't say who it was or anything of that nature. And you know what? They didn't take care of the employees in the old company. They just took care of everybody in the new company. And the employees in the old company, which still exists, are all looking at them going, huh? I now thought I trusted you and now I don't, right? They're like, something didn't happen here right. I'm just using a, a, a use case that I've experienced. And it's like, yeah, that's not right. So anyway, the point is, is that you've got to really uphold with integrity. Uh, your, your, the re, you know, two things that I, I think are, are life lessons that I learned through my business. Number one is that after the first layoff that we did, I did not lose any employee for two and a half years. I even had to do a salary reduction as part of that layoff for the people that were there. I paid everybody back because I, I and, and we gave them additional stock grants and money back. Uh, and I tried to minimize as much as humanly possible. So they knew I was coming from integrity and that we were going to succeed. Not one person left for two and a half years. The average employee in the Silicon Valley lasts for about nine months. And this was a stat five or six years ago. So it's even worse wow. now. Our average employee was about 10 years. We kept our employees because we kept them happy. We paid them a little bit more. We weren't in the Silicon Valley, but we kept our group. We were north of the Silicon Valley, but we kept our group together and keeping those employees for long term. And we did the same thing with our customers. We lost a lot of customers. I will tell you, we didn't always execute right, but we had customers that were with us for 15 and 20 years on e-commerce software where they usually stay three years. So um, 20 years, 20 years we had customers. I can name them. I can name 20 of them right now that were on our software for that length of time. The bond and the relationships that you built, it's all about the relationships, all about your integrity. Let me give you one final point on this thing. One employee, very uh, important employee to me one day said, Ken, you're walking around our campus and we have like four or five buildings here. I'm still in the same spot, even though I sold the company, I'm still in the same little, I have a little more office now. And uh, we have four or five buildings. You can walk around from building to building with your head down, you look stressed out. An employee would come up to you. They wouldn't make contact with them. Seemed like you're having a bad day. They internalize that. They internalize your your challenge as they're doing a horrible job. Could you stop doing that? The second she said it, I went, and anytime I walk out of my office, smile on my face. Now, you know, don't fake it, but, you know, smile on my face. Look up, eye contact. Hello, how are you? By name. For the rest of my, the rest of my career, I have done that. And made sure I always acknowledged, always you know, smiled. I'm not saying be fake, be yourself. Your challenge, you can say, God, it's it, I'm having a, I'm having a rough day today. But you're interacting with them, and they won't think it's you. It just is something that you don't even realize as an entrepreneur the quote unquote power. And I don't mean power in the traditional sense. The influence that you have over people that you're working with, customers, and you know. And and the other thing I'll say is lose your ego. I I, I talk about this in my book. I've got a whole section dedicated to managing your ego. You got to lose your ego. 
Because if, you, if you're going to go into entrepreneurship and you're going to do things out of ego, it's I got to be right. I have to be the smartest brain in the room. Let me tell you, my mentor also told me this. My Sequoia Capital mentor told me this. this is a good piece of advice I got. He's like, Ken, you know what? You don't need to be the smartest brain in the room. Let everybody else talk and then extract out from all the things that they're saying. At the end of the day, when the decision is made, you make the decision, but you make it based on the smart people in the room, right? I, if you're hiring, by the way, let me give you one last thing I got. If you're hiring, don't, and you're start, in a startup and you're an engineer and you want to start up a, a tech company and you hire another engineer or you partner with another engineer, that's exactly the wrong person to hire. Hire the person that is exactly opposite you. You're the engineer, hire a sales and marketing person. Whatever the disciplines are, you want, you want, the, you want, you want complimentary. You don't want the same, right? That, that, the complimentary meaning different, I should say, different in that uh, if you're not a finance person and you're running a services business, maybe you hire the finance person or the marketing person or the engineer or the tech. Anyway, that's just a couple of things that I've run through in my career. Whew, and I've made all the mistakes, by the way. <laughs> all the mistakes. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, Ken, we were chatting a little bit offline. You, you know, you're talking then about layoffs and and you know doing things the right way. And and I, once again, I agree with all of that. But obviously, you can't please everybody all the time. And I mean, layoffs. Obviously, no, most people aren't going to be happy with a layoff. But it's I, we were chatting a little offline before we started about your exit, and you talked a little bit about um, you know there'd been people who got some shares along the way. But you know, obviously, when you're going through this, what any, any person genuinely would look at it and say, what a magnificent exit. But still in that scenario, you, you couldn't please everybody, right? I mean, are you happy to talk through that a little? Yes, absolutely. You know, a couple of two things that you have to realize when you're, and we had about 250 employees. So we were a decent sized company. We weren't super small. We weren't super big, uh, but we had about 250 employees. And there's two things that uh, lead up to what you just asked. One is that it's kind of like you know, I'll say the president of the United States or president of uh, Australia or, or prime minister. I'm sorry, you don't have a president down there. Uh, prime minister, I should know. I love, I love, I love, I love Australia. But I know that you're worldwide as well. So wherever you are, we have our crazy system of politics here in the U.S. and it's crazier every day. But, you know, the president has an approval rating right now. Biden has an approval rating about 40 or 42 percent. Understandable in terms of being, uh, you know, where we are in the in the history. Um, but they, if they have over 50%, they are doing incredible, like Obama. It's like, you got 53%, you are like the best president in the world, okay? Same thing with a, same thing with a CEO uh, or, or with a CEO and or with an entrepreneur, founder, entrepreneur. Here's the deal. None of your employees are gonna have the same perspective that you do going into this. Absolutely, they can't. Because what your job, by the way, your job as the entrepreneur slash CEO of the company is to be the orchestra leader. You're the conductor. You are not playing any one of the instruments. And this is where I made my mistake. I, I thought I played all the instruments. I can market. I can sell. I can engineer. I can operate. I can do whatever, right? No, I stink at all of that. But I'm kind of good enough to know enough about everything because that's my job. I'm the conductor that brings it all together. Don't try to play every instrument, right? Okay. Now, fast forward. There's a piece, little piece of side advice there. Fast forward to you're not going to be liked by everybody, so don't try. It's not going to work. Same thing with the president of the United States or wherever. He's not going to, he or she is not going to be liked by everybody. It's not going to happen. Okay. So you got to go in with the right mindset and be okay with that because you're looking at everything from a different perspective and a different lens than each individual is. And that's your job. Okay. You also may not be liked by your investors and VCs. You don't need to be. You don't need to be liked. They need to respect you. You don't need to be liked. Now, let's fast forward now to selling the company. Whew, I can say a couple of things about this. I can say about before and after. Uh, and, and, and it's not all rosy. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite podcasts was on uh, from startups.com. 
was, uh, you know, life after selling is not so rosy. I forgot the exact name, but that, that's essentially what it is. So, so when I, w w in my situation, we had about 2% of the company that was unallocated. And so I had discretionary, I, I, everybody had options in the company, everybody, and we um, accelerated vesting. So anybody that had options now own shares, right? Accelerated vesting on the sale of the company. That was generous. And, um, uh, but then I had a discretionary bucket that I could give to anybody I wanted. We all agreed to allocate, you know, the board, everybody agreed that I could allocate uh, 2% to everybody, making meet people even more millionaires than they already were. A lot of cases, it wasn't enough. They came back to me. They wanted more. The VCs wanted more. The greed was there. It amazed me. I'm like, this is supposed to be the greatest event of my existence in terms of business existence. And why do I feel kind of crappy? I had to fight with my v one of my VCs. I had to fight with for three or four weeks because things that they promised me all of a sudden, because we didn't act on them, but we talked about it in good faith. They didn't want to act on it. It's like, what are you talking about? And, you know, ultimately I acquiesced and or worked it out, acquiesced and worked out to where everybody's happy and we're good friends now. But for three weeks, we were the worst of enemies. I got to tell you, going through that, the greed that happens in the exit, you see this, Simon, because you see this on every deal. You see this not once, but you see it throughout. The, the entrepreneurs are greedy. The VCs are greedy. The angel investors are greedy and the employees are greedy. Everybody's greedy. Now, there are some people that are not. Don't get me wrong. But when it comes to the actual end event, when you're down to the last couple of weeks, that's when the greed comes out because now it becomes real. Before then, they're like, eh, no big deal. Everything's great. We're all cool. Hang loose. Yeah, no, not when it comes down to the last couple of minutes here. And then the last thing, so that, that was an experience that I had that I thought, God, I'm doing really good things for people. And, and, and then there were people that came back to me and said, I didn't get enough. Or, 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 or I thought I was going to be a millionaire. Well, you're a low-level you know, uh, entry-level person. And because we sold the company, you're going to become a millionaire. That's not the way it works. Maybe at Google, but not here, right? The last thing I'll say is the feeling after you exit is both euphoric for a while because you got a bunch of cash in the bank and you can go travel and do that, which I did. I traveled for a year, best year of my life, loved it. Highly recommend people taking off time. But then there's an emptiness that happens. Here's the, 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 the day in and day out, 16 hours a day, 12 hours a day, pushing, 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 growing, growing, growing. You've got all this dynamic, dynamic nature to your business. You've got hundreds and hundreds of customers, biggest retailers in the world. We did $2 billion a year in online sales for our customers every year. Pretty big responsibility. Uh, when I called up the CEO of whatever, I had Warner Brothers and Disney and Armani and Party City. And these are some companies here in the US and around the world. Johnson & Johnson, all their brands, right? And, and so I had responsibility, all gone. Nobody, nobody cared. I mean, they all liked me. Everything was good. But after I sold the company, it's kind of like, yeah, they're still on LinkedIn and certainly still friendly with everybody, but they're all gone. You have this, what you go from 150 miles an hour or kilometers, whatever their translation is. Sorry, I'm American. I can't help it to, uh, to, to literally like, oh my God, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I was, I, I will say I was 50 when I sold. So I still have a little bit more in me. Uh, and, uh, you could be 40, 50, 30, or you could be 70. You still may have it in you, but there's an emptiness that occurred. And I needed to replace that emptiness. You know, you can have your families, your, all that other stuff, but the business side of your life, there's that emptiness there. And maybe it doesn't happen to everybody, but everybody that I've ever talked to that exists. And then you start filling it up. Cause again, like I told you, you can only watch Netflix so long. You can only mow the lawn and garden for so long. You can only travel for so much. Really, honestly, if you're an entrepreneur, retirement just probably may not necessarily resonate. True entrepreneurs don't really retire. Just like rock stars and actresses and actresses, they don't really retire. So 
Anyway, that, that, that's, that's my journey. I finally, though, found my way, but it took a couple of years. And then after that, I kind of screwed up my businesses a little bit. You know, they're good, but they're not that good. Now I feel like finally, after five or six years, now I'm really excited about what I'm launching, what my new company, Microcasting, which is in the e-learning space, completely separate space than where I was before. I absolutely love it. And I love the creation process and making uh, something out of nothing uh, is so rewarding. So that's where the journey is today. Well, that's fantastic. And, and so a little segue. So t talk to us a little bit more about um, about microcasting. I mean, that's obviously getting your focus and attention. So it's, yeah. Can you share a bit about it? Yeah, real quick. Uh, you know, I started, uh, uh, I, I wanted to learn the e-learning business. So I started a, a site called entrepreneurnow.com where I did a bunch of e-learning. I have, you know, and it's still up. And by the way, tons of free resources uh, for people to go and, and grab lots of courses and other things. But I wanted to really learn e-learning from the ground up. And I did. And I spent several years doing that. And then I'm like, okay, now I'm, I'm a platform guy. I'm a software guy. I want to go build something that's not been built before. I want to do e-learning in a different way. And so we're rolling out kind of e-learning for sales and marketing, for coaches, for influencers, for consultants, or uh, for um, uh, course creators, but also for the purposes of generating sales and marketing. So you're using e-learning to generate sales and marketing activity, customer portals, partner portals, uh, uh, new and unique ways of engaging customers through the lead gen process, lead nurturing process prospecting process, conversion process. That's what our engine does, but it uses e-learning to do it. And e-learning is really the new content marketing. And that's what this represents. So getting such good re response and reviews from people that want to do it, everything from a coach all the way to uh, large companies uh, can use this platform. So we're super excited. Yeah, that's awesome, Ken. I'm, I really look forward to seeing how microcasting goes and, uh, and hearing more about it. I'm sure it'll be a huge success. Um, you know, I think we're probably about out of time at the moment, but can you, are you happy if people wanted to reach out or connect or message you or anything like that? Absolutely. On LinkedIn, Ken Burke, of course, uh, uh, you can find me there pretty identifiable. Uh, but, uh, in addition, KenBurke.com has my book in case anybody's interested, nobody needs to buy it. I don't care. There's some sample chapters up there. A lot of good videos. It's kind of a cross between us. And I just published it. Like it's very recent. Uh, it became an Amazon number one uh, new release. I was very excited for the day. It was like one day that that happened, right? But still, it's enough to promote it. So, you know, if you know the yeah, game, yeah, yeah. that's good. Uh, and uh, it's really a cross between personal development, a little bit of spirituality, a little bit of things that are, how do you really live an extraordinary life? And then, and then how do you, it's five keys to thriving in business and in life. Prosper, five keys to thriving in business and in life. And at the end of the day, you know, at the end of the day, we need to make sure that we're happy that we're experiencing joy and that we're fulfilled in our business and our personal life. That's at the end of the day, how all this comes together. Because if you're struggling right now in your business and it's not in sync and alignment with you, hey, I get, I get the struggles, but if you're not having fun with it and you're not really on that path, you probably shouldn't do it. Right. And sorry to leave with that, but, but, uh, but there's a lot of ways to get through it as well. And that's what I talk about in the book. I think that's a fantastic bookend. You know, if you if your life is a journey, your business is an asset. It's not you. If you're not enjoying your journey, do something about it. All right, do something different because life is short. Absolutely. You know, the one thing you have is time. That's the only asset that you actually have, and that is I treasure that. That's the one thing I obsess over about where I give my time, who I give my time to, what people I associate with, because that's time as well, and what businesses that I do and or won't do. The only thing we have is time period. Full stop. Do you know, it's a, it's a, it's a lovely thought to finish on. It's, it's something that uh, my, my kids were asking about uh, what to buy their grandfather um, for his birthday. And, uh, and I was having, my kids, are, my boys are 13 and 15. 
and um, and I was having a little chuckle because you know really there's no material possession that them or, or frankly probably even myself could buy my father-in-law that he wants needs cares about because of, because I'm he's, he's been successful in his own right he has everything he wants to have it's not it's not about stuff and so I was saying to my kids you know what do you give the man who has everything well you give him the one thing that he values is your time yep. go and spend time with him go and show him that that's that's valuable and important and you know that that he will treasure he will treasure forever and ever and that is yeah that is so Wow, that's so powerful, and it's so true as well. Yeah. Kid, thank you so much for your time. You've been really generous. I loved hearing your story. Um, it's been exciting, inspiring. I I'm sure there'll be lots of people out there pretty excited after hearing from you. So, um, you know, really, really, you know, appreciate it all. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. Awesome. Well, thanks again for tuning in to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. We will be putting up the show notes as always uh, with some uh, contacts there for Ken, but most importantly to his website. Go and check out his book. Um, if you do send him a message, as always, we say, please put a message in there. Maybe let him know you heard him on the podcast so he doesn't think you're some random stranger just uh, sending connection requests. So uh, that'd be great. Thanks for all for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Wherever you are on your business journey, it's worth understanding what is driving value into your business and what could be holding you back. For more information, speak to the team at Exit Advisory Group by going to exitadvisory.com.au or send an email to ask at exitadvisory.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.